everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Stephen. I'm Daniel. And today we're going to continue our first 500-year series. Uh, quick note, please remember to subscribe to the channel if you support the ministry that we're doing here and you support the project of the first 500-year series and you've been benefiting from this content. Uh, please subscribe to the channel and support us. Yeah, also click that bell so that you get notified when there's uh, a new episode that drops. Excellent. So today we're going to be talking about um, something I think that uh, hits at kind of the heart of our channel so far in our series. Um, Anyone who's been following us knows that we've spent a lot of time talking about the quote-unquote Jewish roots of Christianity. Uh, In fact, our first Mm -hmm. episode started with the Judaisms of Jesus, and we talked about how Jesus, in a way, kind of um, sums up in himself all of these various strands. All the disparate groups in Judaism, yeah. Yeah, of Mm -hmm. Judean religion, and, and therefore was able to attract many followers from each one of these strands of Judaism or these sects of Judaism. But because he was also different than all of them, he was able to push away many who were in each of those sects. So he really is, even as prophecy said, this cornerstone figure Mm -hmm. um, that you either stumble over or you build yourself on top of. So as we move from Jesus's ministry into the apostolic ministry, we have this um, this first circum- uh, controversy of the church, which was over circumcision and how how much how, how Jewish, Jewish how Jewish <laughs> do you have to be in order to be a follower to of Jesus? be a Christian? Yeah, yeah. and so yeah. that's that's a, a legacy of even the apostles themselves, sort of um, this tension that is there between the former religion and religion on the other side of Jesus and what this is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, and so you have these Jewish Christian communities in Judea, but then out in the diaspora, you have, you have these Gentile heavy communities. So you have an internal tension in the, in the first century in Christianity that eventually gets settled by the early second century. Now what we're looking at is beyond the borders of the church, looking at it, her, her sister religion, um, which we're going to call rabbinical Judaism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and you can't tell the story of the church in the second century without talking about this body of scholarship, which mm-hmm. we refer to as the parting of the ways. Yeah, and the parting of the ways scholarship is just that—it's telling the story uh, of the separation between rabbinic Judaism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason we're putting a, an adjective in front of Judaism there. Um, you know, a lot of times I think the tendency is to see Judaism as the mother and Christianity as the daughter. That Christianity comes out of Judaism, and then Judaism just kind of continues, and then Christianity goes off on its own way. That's not uh, the correct way to look at it. The the more correct way to look at it is to think of rabbinic Judaism as it, as Judaism moves into the second century. You have two different bodies taking over: rabbinic Judaism, and then Christianity. Mm-hmm. And those are two forms of Judaism that begin to separate from each other. So what you really have is not a mother daughter situation but a, a sister situation, yeah. or estranged sisters. More and more as you move from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, into the 5th and 6th centuries, uh, estranged sisters. Yeah, and we, we had mentioned in a previous episode how, um, like, Essene religion, uh, Essene Judaism, was uh, focused on, you know, the horror that was this temple, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Well, again, once that temple is destroyed in 70 AD, there's, there's really not that much to go on at that point, you know, and you also have with the Sadducees, the whole of their life was the temple cult. So that's why you sort of maybe see the fiddling away of, of those two, but there's a lot of other reasons. But see, but see, we're talking about little separations between these two, but none of those things that you just mentioned 
ever caused the Sadducees or the Kumarites to be considered outside of Judaism. Right, yeah. So the question is then, if we're going to talk about in this episode what begins to separate the rabbis from the Jesus believers, mm-hmm. um, we have to understand and just go over very quickly what brought them together. Okay. Okay. So let's start with um, points of intersection in all sects so, of Second Temple Judaism. So all Jews obviously confess the one God of Israel. Yeah. Okay. The God revealed to Abraham and the patriarchs. They believed that they were the elect people. They embraced a Judean identity. They obeyed the Torah, and they reverenced the Jerusalem temple, the cult. Mm-hmm. And that's everybody. Yeah. So, but you ask yourself, okay, so if that's what bound the Judaisms together in the first century, where did the Jesus believers fit into that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is all of those. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Jesus believers confessed the one God of Israel. They believed they were the promised elect people of God. They embraced Judean identity. Identity. We went through James the, <laughs> James the Just, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they obeyed the Torah. Yeah. The, the first Jewish believers were obeying the Torah, and they reverenced the temple cult. Mm-hmm. They went up daily, it says, to the temple. We went over all that. Yeah. So you can't exclude the Jesus believers from Judaism. And even, even in, the, and even in the, um, the circumcision controversy, um, you know, the resolution for Gentiles was not, you don't have to obey the law. You know, don't, don't read it that way, Acts 15. Mm-hmm. You know, what was really being done is, you know, you're you're like the, the proselytes, you know, for, right. for Judaism. You know, you guys are also supposed to follow certain aspects of the law. Even yeah. if it's not circumcision, you definitely have to abstain from sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to observe the Jewish sexual code. You have to abstain from things strangled in blood and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there were basic requirements still, even for Gentiles. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And, and an important point that's sometimes missed, re- recall how other Jews saw the Christians. So again, Christian is not a term that, the Jesus believers used for themselves. It's an outside term that comes from Antioch. Probably the pagans yeah. labeled the Christians Christians. Yeah. But the Jews saw them as a sect, literally that word, a sect. Uh, you see in the book of Acts, they're called the sect, or they're called the sect of the Nazareans. Mm-hmm. Obviously, after Jesus of Nazareth, they follow the Nazarene. But they're a sect, and that's important, mm-hmm. because in our modern lingo, I think we think that sect is in, has negative connotations to it. Yeah. Okay. Almost like the word cult. We, we get that word wrong. Cult's a positive term, but we think it's a negative term. It has those connotations. Anyway, with sect, it's important that the, the early believers were called a sect because Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he calls the Sadducees a sect. Mm-hmm. He calls the Pharisees a sect. He calls the Essenes a sect. Again, nothing in that early Christian gospel, nothing in the early kerygma could cause the church to be outside the realm of what was considered Jewish mm-hmm. or Judean. Mm-hmm. And that's the important point. And it, and it falls in those major five things that we've outlined that glued these people together. Yeah. Yeah. And even going up to the temple, they, they continue. We, we talked about that. They go up to the temple to pray. So reverence for the temple. Um, so that's all there. Mm-hmm. So that's common to the house, you know, yeah. of, of faith. And, and I would say, I would say the other word we've mentioned before is that the believers uh, saw themselves as the way. Well, you can imagine an outsider looking at Judaism and saying, okay, I see some differences here, but I, I see that that is probably a way within Judaism, mm-hmm. and that's a way within Judaism. Uh, the Essenes themselves consider themselves the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that even that term is shared among the different sects. Oh, no, we're the way. Oh, no, we're the way. Okay, yeah. so there's this live... What we, what we need to get in our minds is that Second Temple Judaism, there was 
it was perhaps chaotic, but there was a lot of <coughs> allowed debate mm-hmm. about who God is and who Israel is and where we're going. Not completely unlike, I would say, like even just uh, modern Protestantism in a way, you know, where it's like it's in many Protestants, it's acceptable for there to be many denominations. There's no... And, and, and different theologies. Yeah, yeah. There's no sense in which, oh, well, then you're not a Christian anymore. Yeah. It's more like, oh, yeah, well, he's a Presbyterian. This is this, this is that. But it's all Protestant. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of think of it that way if you need a modern category. But, mm-hmm. okay, so that's what's common to all of them. So how about we define then sort of this, this parting of the ways, like the initial signs of parting uh, between the Christians and this emergent rabbinicism? Well, I'd want to first go through things that we think are parting. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of times people will point to something like the crucifixion. You know, did did the Judeans really expect their Messiah to be crucified? Isn't that something that would have separated the Christians out as, okay, that's not Judaism. Yeah. Okay. What's interesting about that is, you know, St. Paul in his letters, he mentions a lot of the debates that he has with his fellow Judeans. Okay. Um, but anytime he mentions the crucifixion, he doesn't use combative words. The famous line from St. Paul is that the crucifixion was a stumbling block Mm. to the Judeans, to his fellow Jews. Now, that's not a word you use if the Jews are seeing it as something that pushes you completely outside of the realm, outside the scope, beyond the pale of being Jewish. A stumbling block is more of a debate of word that, okay, I hear you, Paul, but I, I can't, I can't believe that. I, yeah. I, I can't get there, you know? Um, so that's important to hold on to that, I think. Um, so it's not something they put a wall up. It's something they can stumble over, uh, according to St. Paul. So that can be debated, crucifixion. And why is that? Well, it's because of things like Isaiah 53, yeah, the suffering servant. Um, uh, Wisdom chapter 5, it says a righteous one through suffering will be exalted. Yeah. Wisdom uh, chapter 5, I think 5, something like that. But there's there's all this Second Temple literature that is is pushing toward kind of a, a representative of Israel who, who would suffer. Yeah. And so there are a lot of ties to, okay, the Messiah, maybe the Messiah will suffer. So crucifixion, how horrible it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, a dying Messiah, crucified Messiah, wasn't completely beyond the pale. I think what was a stumbling block, I mean, this is just pure conjecture, but I think probably what the... Well, total conjecture because even in the dialogue with Trifo in the mid-second century with um, uh, St. Justin Martyr and his dialogue with a Jew named Trifo, um, he's constantly, uh, Trifo is constantly going back at him and saying, yeah, but he hung on a tree. Okay, so that's proof that God cursed him. Mm. You know, so I think it's actually the manner of death. I don't think they had, they may not have had a total problem right off the bat, um, like you're saying, with a Messiah who comes and suffers and dies even. I think they might have been, okay, well, what do you mean? You know, and, and, and they would have wanted to hear more. I think it's when you say that he was hung on a tree, mm-hmm. that to the to the Jewish ears or to the to to their ears, they're hearing cursed is the one who hangs on a tree yeah. from the Torah. So it was maybe the manner of death for them that was the proof. And again and again, when the Christians begin to explain the crucifixion as, yeah, it is a curse. He took on the mm-hmm. curse. Right. <laughs> um and he took he, now he becomes a, an atonement. Yeah. And when you start talking about atonement, that too could be an initial sign of parting. Because, of course, the Judeans are saying, well, we have the atonement at the temple. Yeah. We have the atonement, atoning sacrifices in Yom Kippur. Um, so that could lead down that path uh, as well. But what everything you've just said is the point is that, yeah, it's a debate. It is. And yeah. they're continuing to have that debate within the synagogues. St. Paul 
went from synagogue to synagogue. Yeah. And he found believers there. Well, and think of it this way. I mean, if the Essenes can get away with still being considered a part of Israel by saying that that temple is a, is a whore. Is a whore. And I they mean, literally moved outside of Jerusalem. Right, to get out of it. And established a separate cult. <laughs> yeah. And still be considered within the realm, within the scope of Judaism, yes. Yeah. Then it's not crazy to, to imagine that Chris, the way would have still been considered a part of Israel, even if they had a crucified Messiah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the second thing sometimes is Messiah itself. Um, you know, the idea of Messiah, that Jesus was Messiah, and that kind of separates out the believers from the rest of Judaism. Um, we're not quite sure what the Sadducees believed about a Messiah. Um, and, we're, and we're pretty sure that most Judeans believe that the Messiah was going to be a political figure. So yes, that could be another stumbling block. Okay, Jesus came and he died. He was supposed to overthrow Steps the Romans the or something. Yeah. yeah. So what, what ended up happening with that? Yeah. But again, the concept, the concept of Messiah is obviously thoroughly Jewish, the anoint, Jewish, the anointed one, the king who is to come. Um, so that's not something off the bat that, again, would push the believers. In they Jesus both believe away. that there's a Messiah coming. So yeah. that Messianism is not unique to the Christians, right. in other words. Yeah, yeah exactly. Would, and especially in the first century. There's all kinds of groups. And especially if you think even into the second century. So we have the second Jewish revolt in the early second century, in the 130s, led by Bar Kokhba. And he is a messianic figure. Yeah. We can tell that from the archaeology, from the coins. He's portrayed as the star, as a messiah who has come to overthrow the Romans. And right. so many Judeans went after his cause. So the concept of following after somebody as a messiah mm-hmm. um, doesn't necessarily exclude you. Here's the other reason why that doesn't necessarily exclude you. Even if the other Judeans were saying, well, yeah, but Jesus died and he's not here anymore and he didn't overthrow the Romans, there's concepts in Second Temple Judaism that point to the idea of two messiahs. Yeah. Okay? So even if that was something that could separate, still other Jews were thinking, okay, yeah, so Jesus was one messiah maybe, but who's the, who's the next? Who's the next one? Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, there's, it's, it's that kind of atmosphere. Exactly. The other major thing that could perhaps be seen as a sign of parting in the first century would be, of course, the early cultic veneration of Jesus himself. Yeah. That the believers in Jesus were worshiping him, cultically venerating him. Um, but even but even there, yeah. um, you had groups like the Krumerites, the Essenes, and you read some of their literature, some of the Dead Sea, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have found, and we've covered that before. Um, you have things like the glorification of heavenly figures that's, that are exalted and sit at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. There are great speculations among the Essenes about who the Messiah might be. Mm-hmm. And you either get a divinized human, right? Or um, an angel who becomes human. Yeah. Okay. So either a human that becomes divine or a divine angel that becomes human. Yeah. Both of those concepts can be shown to be speculations among the Essenes. Right. Right. And even in the Old Testament texts, we have so many instances where the king himself, you know, it's like commanded, like, bow down and worship the king, yeah, you know, Solomon, you're talking about the, Solomon, king, yeah. the king of Israel, you know, in Chronicles. So, so even like Davidic king worship was not totally out, out of bounds. Yeah. Um, At least veneration. Right. Bowing down well, yeah, worship, worship yeah. in the, in the, in the true sense of the word, mm-hmm. which is worship to, to ascribe worth to someone to bow down into that. So, so again, an exalted heavenly figure is not outside beyond the scope of, of what you consider Judaism. So yes, those could be initial signs of parting, 
but not necessarily. And that's all first century stuff. Yeah. So, so the point of going through that is to say that if someone, you know, was, was going to tell like, I guess the, I don't know, the reader's digest uh, version of the history, they would say, oh, well, you know, these Christians, they believe that, you know, Jesus was a second God. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus was a second God. Uh, You know, the, the reason why, you know, Judaism continued to be what it was and Christianity went off was because they declared this man to be the Messiah, even though he was crucified. And it's like, it just, that's a no go for, and, and, and when you really get beyond the reader's digest version, you get into the actual text, especially texts that we've uncovered, like you said, at Qumran and, and so on. We see that actually what the Christians are saying is, pretty typical i mean it's pretty within normal this, it's within the scope of uh jewish speculation about the concepts of god right yeah. i mean doesn't I mean, there's even passages in scripture where the pharisees are not asking jesus like so they're, they're, yeah they're not saying to jesus like um you call you make yourself out to be the son yeah. of god they're like you make yourself out to be the son of god like meaning like they they knew. also knew so let me see if i, I yeah. let me see if i can that's a good verse in luke to actually read um, I know it's the top left of my page, <laughs> so I just have to keep looking at the top page left. memory. <laughs> uh, here we are, top left. Uh, this is Luke chapter right 20. where you left it. Yeah, Luke chapter twenty-two. Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Okay, so uh, when the day came, uh, when day came, the council of elders of the people met, both chief priests and scribes. Uh, and notice how in the Gospels it always says the chief priests. Remember when we said uh, Caiaphas kind of had a family vendetta or something mm-hmm. against Jesus and his followers? Yeah. It's, it's not... There's many priests who join the Christian movement. Anyway, when day came, the council of elders of the, of the people met, both chief priests and scribes, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he replied to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question, you will not respond. But from this time on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. End quote. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further need we have for testimony? We have heard it from his own mouth. Right. Jesus and the Sanhedrin never brought up the term son of God. When Mm -hmm. Jesus was speaking, when they were speaking, he said son of man, Mm -hmm. who sits at the right hand of the father. In reference to probably something like Daniel 7, where this heavenly figure shows up on the throne. At the right hand of the Father, right. apparently. At, <laughs> at the, the, at the right days, hand right. of the Ancient of Days. Right. So that Son of Man terminology is very Jewish terminology. And then they know what he's saying. He yeah. said, oh, so... Oh, so Son of God. So you think you're the Son of God then. <laughs> so in other words, to your point, the the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all know that they're waiting for the Son of God. Yes. But they don't. They just don't think it's Jesus. They just don't think it's him, right. and they think it's blasphemy that he's claiming to be that. Right. Um, it's a very important distinction. I think it's very easy to read the scriptures and to come away saying, oh, "Thank you for reminding man. me of that verse." <laughs> but like you know, to walk away and say like, "Oh my goodness, Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God," and they just can't take it. Yeah. It's like no, <laughs> he's claiming to be something that they themselves are waiting for. But they're like, "Well, you're clearly not him, though." So you've heard it. We've heard yeah. it from your own mouth. Yeah. So what we're saying is then, in general. That the traditional story want, wanted to say that um, Judaism begins, or Christianity, Jesus believers, begin to separate from the Judeans in the first century. And they become ways that are inevitable, inevitably separate, right? We're saying that's not, we have to nuance that. Yeah. What we would say is that the real separations begin in the second century. 
Right. Okay. There's other initial signs of separation that we can go through. Mm -hmm. So the traditional story is generally correct, but it shows this kind of tendency um, that follows the church fathers and that what we call supersessionism, that the church replaces ancient Israel. And so theologically, when scholars were looking back and studying historically the first century and second century, they were saying, well, if Christianity is the church and the church replaces Israel, they must have separated very early on. It must have been a separation. But since the discovery of Qumran, since the discovery of the text, the Ugaritic texts, the Canaanite texts, we've come to understand that first century Judaism, as we have been explaining, is so diverse mm-hmm. and a larger umbrella than we ever thought. Right. Okay. So instead of the those three, the crucifixion, messiah, messianism, and messiah being exalted to the right hand, Apart from from those three, we then have to say, okay, well, there has to be at least seeds in the first that are sown in the first century mm-hmm. that will eventually blossom in the second century into a parting of ways between um, the emergent rabbinicism and this this Christian movement. So, let's maybe just say, what are those? What are those first century kind of seeds that are ready to germinate by the time you get to the end of the second century and into the into yeah? The... So the the first major one would be. Um almost practical, the influx of Gentiles. Yeah. So for the first, uh, we could assume for the first at least two, three decades of the Jesus movement, the majority of the followers were probably Jewish. As you move into the 50s, 60s, 70s, in some areas, now it's going to be majority Gentile. So if you look at the book of Romans, uh, chapter 16, where Paul's listing a bunch of names, it seems as if only about 30% of those people who are listed are Jewish. Mm-hmm. So it's 70-30 in Rome in the late 50s. Yeah. In other places, it's more heavily Jewish. Okay. Um, so the influx of Gentiles challenges ethnic identity. So we said one of the things that ties all the Jews together in this scope of Second Temple Judaism is Judean identity. Mm-hmm. But if now your congregations towards the end of the first century are becoming majority Gentile, what does that do to your Judean identity? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's going to change the face of the church naturally. Yeah, um, and now a, a synagogue is less likely to tolerate an influx of all these Gentiles coming into their synagogues. Whereas before, if you had a couple of Jesus believers still attending synagogue, still observing Sabbath, okay, whatever. Yeah, we can deal with it. Um, but not so if there's an influx of Gentiles. So that, that one tenet that bound them together is being challenged now because all these Gentiles are going coming into the church. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second thing, of course, that we, we've already mentioned is circumcision. You know, just this, this idea um, that these people do not, these Gentiles that are coming in don't need to be circumcised. Yeah. You know. Um, oh, oh, and again, that's a mixed bag too. Yeah, because they also... In some instances, would not, and they were they were fine with these Gentiles who sort of be Klingons to the synagogue, right? And and there are some but... famous Jews um, in history that we know that weren't actually circumcised, yeah. but a different, a- but you know what? It's more than that. It's a different attitude towards circumcision that allows for decisions like that. Okay, but but behind that then is this idea that circumcision doesn't make you righteous, save like save you from the coming judgment or any of these kinds of things, like. The, the Christians are going to focus on a different kind of circumcision made without hands. Namely, they're, but, they're locating it a lot in baptism. And again, this is one of the points, is that at the same time that that circumcision is... Be, which one is it? Chicken or the egg? 
Mm-hmm. Circumcision is becoming more important as a Judean identity. Yeah. Over and against the influx of Gentiles to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's why we're talking about sisters here. Okay. These two sisters are going to develop knocking against each other too. Okay. Like a, a, a jagged rock that's falling from a mountain smooths over time. Mm-hmm. These rabbinic Judaism that comes up out of the Pharisees and these Jesus believers that are coming up out of the first century, they're going at each other. They're debating with each other as they go along and they're shaping each other into smoother and smoother rocks and moving further. And further we apart. can't forget that, that in the first century at the head of a lot of these debates is actually going to be Christians. <laughs> Again, I hate even using the word Christians because it has connotations, but Jesus believers, Jesus, believers, yeah. Jesus followers who are Pharisees who are temple priests, yeah. you know, who have be, who have who have become believers in Jesus, and we'll give we'll give you some texts that show proof of that. But. Yeah, so so they're they're debating with their fellow Pharisees, their fellow you know temple priests. You don't stop being a priest just because you started believing in Jesus. <laughs> right. The priesthood is ethnic; it's handed down through these families. Mm-hmm. You're a priest, okay. Especially now that you're a believer in Jesus, now you're doubly doubly a priest of Melchizedek. Yes. Um, so the priesthood doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Jews, which is why the book of Acts tells us that many priests joined the movement. Right, right. Um, so then you also have in the in the first century um, two different reactions to the destruction of the temple, right? <clears throat> yeah. And the Jewish war in general, the Jewish revolt that takes place. So recall the revolt starts in 66. Jerusalem is uh, destroyed. The temple is destroyed in 70. Um, now... Tradition holds that the Christians fled to Pella. I think we've mentioned that in other previous episodes. Um, the Jesus believers flee the city um, by tradition. What's that going to do to their standing among other Jews who stayed and fought? <laughs> it's going to make them question your loyalty to the temple, isn't it? Of course. So that's another one of those tenets that glued Judean identity, Ju- Judeans together, was... Mm-hmm. Devotion and zeal for the Lord's house will consume me. Uh, everybody else has zeal, but you Jesus believers don't seem to have the zeal that you should have if you are truly Jewish. Which has been a stigma for them since uh, since Christ. I mean, one of the accusations they bring to him is that he speaks blasphemies against this holy place. Mm-hmm. They say the same thing about Stephen. You know, <laughs> it's like he speaks blasphemies about the the temple. Um, so that there is at least this stigma about Christians that they're sort of. Uh, wishy-washy on temple. I'm glad you you brought that up, though, because why was Stephen killed? Because it seems that Stephen in his theology went a little beyond in his attack on the temple. Yeah. James wouldn't have gone that far. Right. So Stephen is killed. So again, persecution of Christians doesn't mean they were outside the scope of Judaism. Right. It just means that Stephen went a little beyond what they were willing to tolerate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, The same thing goes for James, actually, by the way. Why was James killed? Well, the family of the high priest killed him. But then what happened? The elders got together and said, you wrongly killed him. Mm-hmm. And they were mad about it, and they removed the high priest. So even the, the Jewish non-Christians respected James right. well into the 60s in the first century. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have, this, you have this flight to Pella, which kind of makes the Christian movement in and around Jerusalem, at least suspicious. Because even, we know, that even many Essenes took up arms yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> against Rome. They, so, they, yeah, and they too suffered for it. So think about that. You have the Essenes who've been railing against this temple the whole time. When it comes, when push comes to shove, 
They're, you they know, defend the homeland. They defend the homeland. They're, they're, they defend their people. And and yeah, and the it seems like the Jesus believers. The only thing, the only pushback I would say against that, the flight of the flight of Pella tradition is pretty strong in literary evidence of the third and fourth fourth century, um, but archaeology is mixed on it. Mm. You know, they've excavated Pella. There's not a lot of um, obvious Christian pre- presence there. Mm-hmm. Now that could be for a number of reasons, but. The other thing to think about, the other pushback is the um, the bishop lists. So we're told that the Christians had to flee Jerusalem, but we also have the early bishop lists of the Jerusalem church all the way into the second century, and the lists are clearly Jewish names. Mm-hmm. So a Jewish bishopric continued ethnically, Judean bishopric continued sometime into the second century leading up to the... Um, Barcoba revolt. So yes, this is an initial sign of separation, but not yet. Yeah. Again, it's a not yet kind of thing. The real destruction was the revolt with Barcoba. Yeah. That's when the Romans came in and leveled everybody and kicked everybody out. Right. So that's a little pushback to this. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the fourth thing that kind of plants some seeds is taxation policy, right? So why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? So it's called the Fiscus Judaicus. Uh, it's a tax. So... <laughs> You know the Romans. They well, take to... a sip. You, you picked up yeah. your cup. Yeah, yeah, take right. that sip. The Romans like to. <laughs> that stick... was going to be a good. The one. Romans like to be ironic. <laughs> they like to stick it to people, which is why they crucified people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or like putting up on Jesus' cross, King of the Jews, right, mocking him. Yeah. They love to mock people. So what happens is the, whole the Jews. Yeah. yeah. The diaspora Jews and all the Jews would give two drachma. I think it was uh, a year to the temple to upkeep the temple, to pay the priest, all that stuff, to pay, mm-hmm. to keep the sacrificial system going. So no matter where you were in the in the uh, Mediterranean. You would go to your local synagogue, register, pay your tax to the temple. Yeah. Well, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. And they said, wait a minute, though. These Jews have money <laughs> that they've been paying to this temple. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to tax the Jews. We're going to tax the, Jude- the Judeans. And that tax is going to go to build the temple of Jupiter. Mm. So they transfer the tax to a pagan temple. And now all the Jews, um, ethnic Jews, have to pay the tax. So... You can imagine a lot of Judean Christians wanting to separate themselves from their ethnic bounds Mm -hmm. uh, and separate themselves from the synagogues. Mm -hmm. But even if they didn't, so Emperor Vespasian was the one who put in the tax initially. Emperor Nerva in the late first century, 96 or so, reforms the tax. And he says, no, the tax is going to be taxed to people who continue the ancestral customs of the Jews. Mm-hmm. So really now the Jesus believers who are who are Jewish ethnically, now they have a reason to say, yeah, Mm-mm. we don't need to be a part of that. We anymore. don't keep the new moons this right. <laughs> right. If I have to if I have to keep away from, you know, sacrifice meats, I'm certainly not going to give a tax if I don't have to to a pagan temple. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So again, that's a small reason why Judean Christians are going to start to maybe move away from synagogues. Right. Uh, and you get evidence of that in the 90s. The Gospel of John is great evidence. Revelation is great evidence for um, Jewish Christians being kicked out of the synagogues. Mm-hmm. And we start to see that towards the late first century. Segway. So that's yeah. point number five, which is uh, the Birkat Hamanim, which is the condemnation of heretics, that, that the text that we see uh, arise out of the synagogues. We have mention of it, too, in, in Christian sources. Um, namely, again, that, that source, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, where... 
he actually mentions that you know you curse us and you curse in your synagogues those who believe in Christ. Mm. Um, so that that condemnation starts to arise around this time, right? Yeah. So um, traditional scholarship says so the so the Birkat Hamanim is part of the the eighteen benedictions, the eighteen blessings that rabbinic Jews say every day, okay, three times a day, um, and it's a list of eighteen of these things. In the twelfth one, Steve, you can read it for us in a second. In the twelfth one, there's a condemnation against the minim, and that word um, literally means sorts, like sorts of people. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it comes to mean heretics, people we we push out of synagogues, basically. And and for a long time, the, the scholars um, believed that this comes up out of the late first century. That this this benediction formulated itself under um, Gamaliel II, which would be the late first century. There are other scholars who would argue that actually, no, it's Gamaliel I, Rabbi Gamaliel I, who introduces it um, to ostracize the Sadducees, actually. Mm-hmm. But it's carried over, Minim, uh, and this curse, basically, on non-Rabbinic Jews. So, Steve, read for us the 12th. All right. So, <clears throat> it says... For the apostates, let there be no hope, and may the kingdom of the arrogant be quickly uprooted in our days, and may the Nazarim and the Minim instantly perish. May they be blotted from the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Blessed are you, O Lord, humbler of the arrogant. Okay, so you could point to this and say, okay, this is beginning to be said over and over and over by these, by the descendants of the Pharisees, the rabbinic Jews, and their synagogue system. Okay. So this is a point of separation. They're pushing out people who don't agree with them on certain things. That probably included the Christians, but included a lot of other folks too. Because mm-hmm. minim is just a general term. They're never really specific. Um, however, some will point out that that benediction reads like a family feud. Mm-hmm. They're saying, Lord, please blot them out of the book of life. Meaning that, that they're, they're in, in the book of right. life. Yeah, they're in it, yeah. But we want you to blot them out right. of the book of life. So it's more like a, a debating family feud that's and the, going on. And they're on. saying to humble the arrogant. They're, right. they're, they're saying that they're arrogant. Yeah. Um, you know. They're not saying they, have, they hold some specific heresy, mm-hmm. but they're insolent. That we, you know, we don't like their attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And so they don't, take, yeah, they don't heed the elders. Yeah. So take the inheritance away from them, basically. Right. So again, yes, it's a separation, but it's also kind of showing, they're showing their hand. Yeah. Separation implies that there's a previous yeah. unity. So The other word there you used, Nazarim? Yeah. That part of the benediction has been shown to be later. Yeah. Because apparently in the manuscript tradition, um, it's an, it appears in different spots in that benediction. So you know that it must have been an addition and people in different areas added it in a Put different... in different places. Right. Yeah. That specifically speaks of the Christians. Yeah. The Nazarenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, and, and scholars will say that's mid to late second century. So you said, St. Justin Martyr says, hey, the, the Jews in their curse synagogues, us. they curse us in their synagogues. Perhaps it was the mid second century when that was put into there. And he knows of it because he's, of course, from Syria. Yeah. Yeah. So originally it would have read that, you know, may the, the arrogant be uprooted in our days and may the minim yeah. instantly perish. But by the second century, you're saying mid-second century, they add in this, may the Nazarim and the Minim yeah. perish. Yeah. So they're being a little more specific as in, no, you guys need to also beat it. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. We have um, then already in the late first century and the early part of the second century, these these seeds um, that but, we think are much more fertile for the later parting of the ways to blossom. Yeah. 
Um, but but I, I think go ahead. Can we look at? I want to get back to the Barcoba. Yeah. Um, just because this is another. So you're. What, I think what our listeners should be hearing is that it's not always about theology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not churches that separate. It's peoples. It's people groups. Okay. It's it's stuff that's going on on the ground too politically. Okay. So we mentioned the destruction of the temple in the seventy. But again, I'll, I'll emphasize Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian, and his suppression of the Jews in the Second Revolt in the 130s. It's really ethnic cleansing is what takes place. Not only does he come in and conquer uh, Judea again, but he kicks out everyone who is ethnically Jewish from Jerusalem and central Judea, mm-hmm. the whole territory. They're no longer allowed even in there. And so that's when you see, okay, well, who's left then? Just the Gentiles. And that's exactly when the Gentile bishops begin uh-huh. to start mm-hmm. um, and carry on a Jerusalem church. So clearly there's outside factors, political factors that are affecting the separation between Christians and their Judean identity. Yeah, and keeping in mind too that if you followed our um, previous episode about, about the successors of Peter, you know, this is all happening right around the same time. You know, so you're like Jerusalem and Judea is is receding in terms mm-hmm. of its like heritage, its apostolic heritage, because that's being wiped out mm-hmm. by the Romans. You know, absolutely. Um, not if if what the Jews were doing, well, the <laughs> I keep saying the Jews. <laughs> what the Judeans? What the Judeans were doing to the the the. Believers so we're in saying Jesus. That, so we're saying that because Judeos, the word that can be translated Jews, and it is often translated Jews in the New Testament, actually um, can be translated Judean. Right. And I think it's helpful. <laughs> it's helpful for us because when we hear the word Jew, we automatically have these modern categories of who a Jew is, right. and what is Jewishness. Yeah. But we we got to break those categories down. Yeah. And I think they don't Judean, yeah. Judean helps us break that down. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the Jews didn't call themselves Jews. Right. Okay. And the Christians didn't call themselves Christians until later. Yeah. So, um, these, these, uh, these members of Israelite religion <laughs> were, were, um, yeah, but, but if, if they didn't do enough damage to the, the fledgling like Christian movement in the first century, well, the Romans really finished the job. Yeah. And, and so, um, Judea is not where the church is looking then, and this is why. So this is also part of that story. I hope that people are able to tie this thread from episode to episode, that that's why you have the ascendancy of other seas other seas yeah. at this time. Yeah. Um, but okay, so let's talk about then the, the second century, because that's the century we're in. But can I say something? You just, because you said... <laughs> You're killing me, man. Because you said, you know, people are looking to other seas. Well, they're looking to other seas, but they're looking to other people. James is dead again. Yeah. Who's alive? Peter's alive. Yeah. He's Judean. He carries the Judean tradition, right? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Um, so now <laughs> we're going to move into the second century. And let's talk about how some of these seeds really blossom and what that, what that looks like. Um, I, I think just an overall point is that um, I, think, I think the Christians... The, the, the believers in Jesus in the first century set themselves up in a way that even the Essenes never did. They set themselves up to be able to survive without reference to the temple. 
Like, like, like they don't. Well, the scenes did, but but they were also political. Yeah, and so the Romans took care of that yeah. one. Yeah, and ultimately they were still ethnically tied. Mm-hmm. The Christians, when you have you know this this influx of Gentiles, like we said, um, the ethnic tie is at least a little weaker um, to yeah. Judean identity. You know, so they set themselves up because all throughout littered throughout the new testament from jesus's own words of saying not one stone of this temple is going to be left upon another and jesus saying tear down this temple i'll raise it in three days so there's already this concept by the late first century especially in john's writings and stuff that that jesus wherever jesus is is the temple temple and jesus says wherever two or three are gathered my name there i am in their midst so christians are putting this together in their minds that wherever the christians are gathered jesus believers wherever these Jesus believers are gathered, (laughs) in their minds, that is the temple. And so the temple, for them, it's not that it doesn't exist. That's that's actually a mistake. For the Christians, the temple does exist. It's just that that temple has been not only fulfilled, but the fulfilled version of that temple and its cult has actually gone out into all the earth. So that everywhere that Christians are meeting, that that right there is the instantiation of the new temple. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the 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 Judeans do not see it that way. You know, they're still very much attached to this temple. So the, right, yeah. So, so the, the 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 rabbis, the ones who survived the wars, and they they have the synagogue system in place. The f- literally the first writings we have from the rabbis is not until the late second, early third century. It's called the Mishnah. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a commentary on the laws of Israel, and. In the Mishnah, there is great focus on the temple, mm-hmm. ironically, from the rabbis. Great focus on Levitical laws, great focus on priests. They even tell us in the Mishnah that there are still groups of priests. Mm-hmm. So the rabbis had a hope, clearly, that the temple would someday return. Right. Okay. But they were set up to succeed because the rabbis are studiers. They're book people. Mm-hmm. And the Torah for them begins to replace temple cult. Well, and, and okay, so so you're you're hitting on on my main point then. Before we go into this, is right. that the Christians in the first century had already set themselves up to be okay without a temple. The 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 non-believing Judeans were were not as 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 uh, strongly set up for that reality. So the story of the parting of the ways, in a way, of the second century between Judaism, rabbinical Judaism and Christianity is really a story of not Christians developing a ton, right, their concept of these things. It's really like, well, what's going on in rabbinical Judaism? What, what are they developing mm-hmm. that is actually separating them more starkly from this Christian movement? You know, it, it's... What's separating? What are the what are the rabbis saying theologically that's separating from Christians, and what are Christians saying that's separating from the rabbis? Mm-hmm. And what strands of Second Temple Judaism are both of them pulling on to separate? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but what, but but my point is that like there's more of a burden of proof in a way, quote unquote, for the rabbinics to define themselves because they don't have that temple anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Christians, they already had defined themselves without that temple, so they're going to continue to to develop that thought and flourish in that, and and those changes are, need to be tracked. But my point is that, like, when we when we think of that that mother daughter relationship, a lot of people assume the mother daughter relationship of like, oh well, Judaism kind of just stayed what it was, and Christian. It's like no, actually, the burden of proof here for for the second century is on the rabbinics because they have to prove that their version of this 
religion can can survive without survive. reference to a temple. I mean, think about it, guys. When you're talking about Second Temple Judaism, you're talking about a religion of sacrifice. You're talking about a you're again, Jerusalem is not a city with a temple. It was a temple with a city. Like everything revolved around that temple. And even to your point, even Jews that did not live in Judea, Egypt, for example, what did they do? They built their own temple. They built a temple. (laughs) Uh, They had a temple in Egypt, Heliopolis. Altar and sacrifice is is ingrained in the DNA of Second Temple Judaism Mm -hmm. and First Temple Judaism. It's like you can't imagine it without the temple. So now, again, when the temple is gone after 70 AD, you're going to have this period between there and the Barcova Revolt where there's the hope that will get that temple back and rebuilt. And and even after, that they'll, they'll always hope right. for it. But but there's something about that Barcova revolt that 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 really dashes the... It, it at least puts so much of a setback on them that they have to pivot in some way or another. You know, yeah. they have to they have to define yeah. themselves there's in certain pivots. ways. Yeah. So so that's so it so just keep that in your mind as we go through like the, you know the second century mm-hmm. blossoming of these parting of the ways. So the first thing that we would bring up is the concept of God is different. Like it starts to change, mm-hmm. and we're actually um, because this is so important. We're we're going to do a follow up we'll episode yeah. uh, on this specific thing because the real question is: Was Second Temple or even First Temple Judaism ever really "quote unquote" monotheistic? Mm-hmm. Was it ever? Um, which you know gets us into like it's modern a whole debates. Other episodes, so yeah. we'll cover that. We'll talk about that. Yeah. So we have like. Um, this, the whole idea of strict monotheism. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be a, a means of parting, but we'll talk about it. So the second thing that we want, we want to talk about then is the cult, like we said with the temple. You know, the you sort of have like this tension between a tendency to allegorize parts of the temple cult and temple ritual as opposed to continuing to instantiate those rituals mm-hmm. without the temple there, <laughs> you know? So that's, yeah, let's flush that out. So we have like, we have like, okay, so the epistle to Barnabas on the Christian side. Um, the, so the, the pis- letter to the Hebrews even. Pis- Hebrews, you know, epistle but- of Barnabas, again, could be a late first century, but mostly a early second century document written by some Christian who's maybe has a Jewish ethnic background. Mm-hmm. But you see in there this, this heavy tendency to take all of the temple rituals and symbols of the old covenant and to spiritualize them so like just just take like as an example circumcision okay that's an easy one you know where it's like oh you 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 know stupid you know foolish people you didn't realize that when moses gave you circumcision he wasn't even talking about circumcision. He was talking about circumcision of the heart. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so that they... Or, st- <laughs> or the one that always stuck out to me was, uh, he's talking about the finest flower, the sacrifices of finest uh, flower, um, saying that there are no more sacrifices of finest, finest flower at all, you know? Um, so he's spiritual, what we call spiritualizing the whole cult. And it's almost like a, it's like how Westerners, Western self-loathe themselves. It's like the letter of Barnabas does that same thing. The letter of Barnabas is very anti-Jewish, even though it's written by probably a Jew, a, a, yeah, an ethnic Jew. Yeah, yeah. I think a great analogy, once again, for this is Protestantism, because Protestantism will often see what, like, they'll look at Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy, and they'll say, like, you guys are just doing, you're, you're stuck in law and ritual and rites and ceremonies mm-hmm. 
all of that has been spiritualized in Christ. And they'll say, like, that's why, like, like the true sacrifice is not a grain offering or this or that. Mm-hmm. It's it's the fruit of lips, you know, mm-hmm. that give give praise to give his praise name. praise to God, yeah. And, so, yeah. and that's exactly what Barnabas would say in the letter. Exactly. So that's one strand coming up, this kind of anti-cultic strand. Mm-hmm. I, think anti, what, I would say anti-sacerdotal, I guess we could say. It anti, way, you know? Anti-sacerdotal, yeah. anti, anti-sacrificial strand coming up within Christianity in some way. But I think what you're getting is that the rabbis are going the same way. Yeah. The rabbis are pretty much doing the same exact the same, thing as Barnabas. The same thing. But politely. And I would say this. <laughs> I would say Barnabas represents one strand of the early Christian movement, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. Because then you have do- documents like we've already mentioned, like the Didache. Where it's like, no, there are offerings. Like there are still offerings going on. And by the time you get to the second century, the late second century, early, early third century liturgical documents of the church that are finally bubbling up, which means that the ritual goes back to the early second century, um, you're seeing all kinds of stuff going on when Christians gather yeah. together. The offer, bloodless oblation. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of offerings. People are bringing offerings to the church, like to offer. Yeah, like and as, offerings to the prophets, first fruits. First fruits, prophets. exactly. Um, um, so yeah, you you still have a a temple and, cultic atmosphere in these churches. So, in these and, and the view that wins out, what, this is an important point, the view that wins out within these strands of Christianity is the cultic one. Mm-hmm. That No, no. The, the church reasserts its cultic um, identity yeah. in the Eucharist. Yeah. Uh, and that is what wins out, and that's obviously the Holy Spirit guiding the church. So yes, you can find anti-sacerdotal spiritualizing of the cult among some early Christian writers, but that's not what ends up winning today. Yes, so the tendency for Christians the, 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 as the, the great church is developing is that, no, 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 there's still a temple cult. It's fulfilled in Christ. Mm. You know, what was previously in like these, these dim types and stuff is now, you know, for us in images and symbols and all these different things. Um, for the rabbinics, you initially had that tendency to sort of maintain a lot of these kind of temple-ish rituals and stuff. But as you move further and further, you know, into the latter half of the second century, third century, fourth, you know, and, you, and so on and so forth, rabbinical Judaism is going to go heavy on spiritualizing the cult. That the cult is, you even have, I mean, all the way even to the modern times, where like Jews today will even say, you don't even need it. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need it because we have Torah. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have prayer. We have these things. And so they've completely um, moved beyond the need for a cult. Right. And we're not Jewish scholars, but that's the trend to look at. Yeah. in rabbinic Judaism, is that move from cultic temple to Torah. Yeah. So I, 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 I like, wrote this down as, like, one of the questions. Like, can you, can you say that the rabbis would prefer to allegorize the temple cult and maintain a more concretized view of the messianic promises, mm-hmm. while Christians would have a tendency to allegorize the messianic promises and maintain a more concretized practice. Okay, so let's flesh that out because you're saying the the Christians are allegorizing the messianic promises. Why would they need to do that? Because it would seem that a kingdom would need to be established by the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So the Christians have to read those texts in the Old Testament and say, yeah, that's the second coming. Right. And the rabbis are saying, no, no, that's supposed to be the first coming. That's but there's the there's also some instances where you have, like, uh, where Justin's having the dialogue with Trypho, and Trypho says to him, Hey man, like Jesus ain't the guy because Elijah didn't come. Mm-hmm. The last thing that we read in the prophets is that Elijah is going to come and herald the coming of the Messiah. Elijah didn't come. Jesus ain't the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Done. See, that's a very literal reading mm-hmm. of the prophets. 
Now you move over Christians to Christians. Christians are on their heels. They say, well, we got, we got to figure that out. Right. Well, it comes up even in the New Testament where Jesus says, and those of you who have ears to hear, John the Baptist was Elijah. And in fact, that's what we talked about this, that, that John did everything that Elijah does. <laughs> he dressed like Elijah, acted like Elijah. Yeah. So, so for Christians, like John was that forerunner. He was that, spiritually. that herald. Yes, yeah. spiritually, mm-hmm. but not literally Elijah, you know, yeah. um, unless you're going to count in the transfiguration, you know. Yeah. So, so that's interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the lion hasn't lied down with the lamb. What do we do? Well... But the Jew and the Gentile have found peace with one another. So that is the lion and the lamb lying down together. So you, mm-hmm. that's that's where the Christians are going to go with these messianic promises, at least the, in Jesus' first coming. And then and then you get the book of Revelation where it's like, no, Jesus is going to come back and, and do all those things you're expecting. And, and don't yeah. don't think that the Jews stopped believing the Messiah was going to come. That's not That didn't change. Right. The rabbinic Jews, in the 18 benedictions, in fact, are still calling upon the Davidic kingdom to come. And to overthrow the evil forces mm-hmm. and the evil kingdom. So keep your uh, eye on that. Keep your eye on the fact that Christians will take... So you have two things. Temple, cult, messianic promises. And both of them agree on these things. For the Christians, the temple cult is a lot more instantiated in the Christian communities all over the world. And they maintain these rituals in a way, in a fulfilled way. But the messianic promises, they're going to think, you know, are more like there's... It, it was some a, he fulfilled, right, and others and others come, he's, he's is yet to again. be fulfilled, right, and and even the ones he did fulfill it's, were fulfilled in very in ways we didn't expect. Especially remember because a lot of it later became a heresy, but Chileasm, mm-hmm. yes, many many early Christians believed in a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ. Um, a lot of the early writers did, and so the early writer you can you can imagine a lot of early Jesus believers saying to Jews. Yeah, he is going to come to establish his kingdom on earth and overthrow the Romans and all that stuff. We just got to wait a second here. Yeah. And you're saying, well, no, he's supposed to do it the first time, first right. time he came. Yeah. So again, that's a real debatable. There's intermingling going on in that debate, mm-hmm. even into the second century. Yeah. So then the the the, rabbin, the rabbinicism that is emerging is going to take the opposite approach, sort of. Uh, we'll take the opposite approach to sort of concretize those messianic promises as a way of arguing against Christians. And spiritualize the cult so as to say, like, well, that's why we can exist without the temple. We don't, yeah. you know, we don't need it, you know, right. because of all these different. Things. So yeah. that's how that's how you might look at the uh, the modes of departure for these mm-hmm. two. Um, so we have also the we also have a departure in the second century on canon. Mm-hmm. Um, what texts yeah. are going to be common to the house when mm-hmm. we tell our story? Yeah, exactly. So the first uh, canon we get is the Muratorian canon out of Rome in the late second century, New Testament canon, um, and it's it's well besides Marcion's canon, but <laughs> well, I was just going to say, hey, don't jump ahead. I was just going to say that it was probably put together because, because Marcion. Right? We'll get to Marcion. We'll deal with Marcion. Um, but so the Christians are beginning to build a canon. Now, as we move through the second century, there's going to be. Um, things that that are markers for why for how the church survives. One of them is canon. Mm. Okay, so the canon begins to develop in many areas. It's still different among some churches. Okay, this book's out. This one's in. This one, whatever. But what's important here is we're talking about the Old Testament canon. The Christians are going to adopt a lot of Jewish writings that the rabbinic Jews do not adopt. 
Right. So a lot of the Apocrypha, writings that you would think the rabbinic Jews would keep and promote, they begin to put aside. Yeah. So um, we think of the books that are included in the Catholic Bible in, in our Catholic Old Testament, the Apocrypha, or sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, or what Protestants would consider Apocrypha. Yeah. So books like Sirach, uh, books like Wisdom of Solomon, Susanna and the Dragon, Susanna and the, yeah. Tobit, Tobit, right. There are books that, not just Roman Catholics, but Eastern Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, have in their Old Testament canon that never became the rabbinic canon. Okay, we're, and next episode we're going to flush out some reasons why that is. Which, by the way, but, let me just insert here for one second. Like, you just mentioned, like, three different churches that have different Old Testament canons. Yeah. So, like... The Old Testament canon technically has never been established. Settled universally. <laughs> right. So when when Protestants are coming to like Catholics and Orthodox and saying like, you know, sola scriptura, like scripture alone, you're like, dude, the canon actually still has not been settled. Yeah. Just a note. Just just noted. Just a little jab. Noted. <laughs> uh, noted. Um, and, well, the other jab, sorry, Protestant <laughs> friends. The other jab is that the Protestants will go back at Catholics and say, we follow the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. But what we're saying to you is that that's not what the church followed. Right. We don't follow the rabbinics because we don't we don't believe what the rabbinics believe. This was one of the so, points of contention, actually, is that the Christians were saying, like, <laughs> like these texts we've used for how long now? We've used and for all two, three sudden, centuries. And all, all of a sudden, right. you're going to back out because it's saying something about the Messiah that you don't like. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I know, you're being, <laughs> I'm being yeah, mean. You're getting feisty. You're getting zealous. No, that's, but that's the point is that those things are happening. What else is happening? So the Christians are, are adopting a lot of the Apocrypha. They're adopting a lot of the Pseudepigrapha right, mm-hmm. writings that are, that are coming up. Um, they're adopting uh, Philo. Yeah. So Philo of Alexandria is a, a Jewish philosopher, Platonic philosopher, contemporary to Jesus, Widely read, widely known. The only reason we have his large corpus of writings is because the church preserved it, not the not rabbis. Jews. Yeah. The rabbis rejected Philo. Mm-hmm. Why is that? We'll answer that next episode. Right. The other thing to note is that the rabbis, we can tell this from uh, rabbinic writings, they did not like people on their own reading Ezekiel chapter 1. They didn't want people studying that chapter. You had to go to your rabbi to ask about that chapter. Mm-hmm. They didn't like it. Why? I'll leave it to the audience. Go read chapter one of Ezekiel. <laughs> and then you come to your conclusion why you think the rabbis would push that away. Yeah. It, it also, um, just looking at this from like an anthropological standpoint, when you have the destruction of the temple and Jews are being scattered out of Judea, there's one thing that has to happen in any people group, and it is you have to preserve your ethnic traditions. You have to preserve your ethnicity. And, and, and one of the biggest hallmarks of ethnicity is language. Mm-hmm. It's everything. So there's this push. You yeah, know, we understand obviously. it. We understand, oh, yeah. we understand why the rabbis are doing it. They, yeah. they want to preserve Hebrewism. Yes. A lot of these Second Temple texts are Judeo-Greco. Right. They're Hellenistic. They're Hellenistic texts. Yeah. Written okay. in Greek. <laughs> so we under... Right. I don't want to seem like, oh, why are the rabbis rejecting these? You're yeah. right. You're good Good correction that they're seeing it as, though no, that's too Hellenistic. We need to preserve ourselves. Right. We got these Hellenists coming at us, destroying our temple, destroying our land, kicking us out of our out of Palestine, the land promised to us. So yeah, 
completely understandable. But the, the yeah. point stands that the rabbis are being very careful with what they're selecting as, no, that this is going to be the canon. Right. And Christians are saying, no, this this has been part this... of Judaism for two, three, four, five centuries. Yeah. yeah. This has been common to the household. So again, you see, again, when you're studying history, you're looking at change and continuity over time. And especially when the, the trope is that, you know, Christianity branches off of Judaism. Well, here's a great instance where you're like, well, who's preserving the tradition and who is changing something here, right? And what you see is that, this this honing in of, of rabbinicism on on their ethnicity is causing them and also their theology is causing them to sort of start to put walls around the canon that weren't previously there yeah. and the Christians are like well wait a second this has always been common to the house yeah and so that's the whole point of you know when we're talking about parting the ways we're talking about scholars like uh, Daniel Barron Dr Daniel Barron who wrote the book Borderlines mm-hmm. okay the walls are starting to come up second third fourth centuries. But they weren't there all the, that mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So walls are starting to be built, but the borderlines are pretty blurry up until, you know, we would argue the second century. He would argue a little further. But yeah. Um, okay. The last two things that uh, we see blossom in the second century again is this continued growth of the Gentile aspect of, of the church. It it just it doesn't stop. You know, it just keeps bringing in more and more and more mm-hmm. Gentiles. And for Christians, that is what the Old Testament was about all along. But for, for Judeans, they're starting to hone in on like Torah, their traditions, the traditions of their fathers, the Gentiles are, you know, an unrighteous people and all these. So, so you have on well, the I one think, hand... And I think proselytism begins to die of course, with the rabbis. Yeah. yeah, it begins to wane. There, There is some evidence of, you know evangelization if you will maybe yeah when you're being attacked you're not going to be you're not going to be focused on spreading your 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 message you're going to be focused on surviving preservation so they're preserving and surviving while christians are going out and spreading their message and so they're bringing in large swaths of gentiles and so the face of christianity continues to develop and and change over time but you have that continued aspect of of proselytism that dies down in rabbinicism Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that's that's going to be a point of departure, just culturally speaking. So when they come to talk to each other, now they're really speaking two, two yeah. different languages. So and, like, and, yeah. and and again, when we're talking about Jews being suppressed and persecuted and all that, that's also a clue to saying the parting of the ways is happening in the second century. Yeah, because Romans are also persecuting Christians, but it's happening separately. Yeah. They're, they're, the they're, Romans they're, know when they're persecuting Jews, right. and the they're Romans persecu- know when they're persecuting Christians. They're persecuting qu- Christians qua Christians, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, yeah. so even the Romans at this point are able to di- differentiate: mm-hmm. these are the Jews, these are the Christians. Mm-hmm. In most of the empire, I mean, you know, Rome, yeah, happened in the first century, but in most of the empire, that's happening. This, the distinctions yeah. are there. So, the final point um, of parting the ways in the second century is this development of the concept of heresy, where the the rabbinics move from a concept of sect to heresy um that blossoms and we actually do see that like no you're teaching wrong things yeah so borders are starting to be built uh, the development of the term the the concept of heresy heretical wrong thinking and wrong doing so if you look at uh, the mishnah so again the mishnah is that great um rabbinical commentary the first piece of literature we have from the rabbis late second century early third century uh it says at the beginning um it puts three borders up. It says, uh, the following have no share in the world to come. One who denies the resurrection of the dead, one who denies that the Torah is from heaven, and an Epicurean. Mm. Okay. So those, so again, Harris, none of those mention Christians, but again, we said the benedictions are mentioning Christians. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
in the Mishnah, it's mentioning those three things. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're outside the scope now. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't the case in the first century. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and they were inside the scope. They were the priests. Yeah. Um, ep- Epicurean, right? If you're an Epicurean, flesh that one out for people. Yeah. Uh, so basically with Epicureans is that there's nothing, there, there's no judgment, you know, that's going yeah. to happen. There's nothing like that. So like literally the happy life, the good life, the yeah. philosopher's life is actually to find happiness and joy and blessedness through pleasure. So it was a hedonism. I mean, in a way, it's like a hedonism, you know. Yeah. So, so it denies uh, accountability people, for accountability actions. for actions. Mm. And so the, what the rabbis are stressing there by saying, if you're not procuring, you're out, is that there will be a judgment. Yeah. And, so denying the judgment. Right. Yes. Denying the judgment. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was that if you deny that the Torah is from heaven, mm. that has come down from heaven. I'm going to leave that there because we're actually going to get into We'll that. pick that one up. We're going to pick that one up in the next episode. But again... These borders are, are now coming into Judaism. By the time you get to the early 3rd century then, so to round this out and, and to round out this episode, at the beginning of this, we're talking about all this fluidity. Bam, bam, bam. You know, you, it's like, you no, know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't take you away from, from the common household yeah. yet. Yeah. But by the time you get to the early 3rd century, you have even in like some Christian documents the idea that like, well, they have Moses, like... We have Christ. <laughs> and and the only way that somebody could say something like that, you know, is if it's like, it's over. Like, it's like, over. like, like we gave, we're giving up. So those documents like. <laughs> are fun. We'll mention them. Those documents are fun because it tells us two things. It, you could read it as it's over. Mm-hmm. And they're just saying, yeah, the Jews, and uh, yeah, they didn't accept Jesus. And right. we got to try and explain that. Right. Um, or you can read it as there's still, there are still Jewish uh, believers who are trying to explain why mo- the majority of Jews haven't accepted. So there's still intermingling going on, yeah. right? You can read it both ways. Yeah. yeah. I'm there. Uh, two great texts for you to, for, for our listeners to go read, really, um, that show still intersection happening between Judaism and Judaism, basically. Judaism and Judaism, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Christianity and rabbinic Judaism, or, or just Judaism in general. Uh, the Testaments, uh, Testaments of the Patriarchs. Mm-hmm. So these are documents that can be dated maybe to the late 1st century, but definitely to the 2nd century, perhaps after the Barcoba Revolt. Why are they important? So they purport to be um, the last will and testament of each of the 12 sons okay, of Jacob. Mm-hmm. And so every tribe, basically, Dan, Benjamin, yeah. you know, you know, yeah, Levi, yeah. they all have a, te- a last will and testament. And these documents are very, very interesting because they could only really have been written by someone who is ethnically Jewish. Mm. They still love Torah. It's still clear that they love Torah and they observe Torah. It's still clear that they follow purity laws. They're circumcised. They're Torah observant. Mm. But it's like Jesus is kind of sprinkled into these documents mm-hmm. as their Messiah. And and they're pro-Paul. Paul. Mm-hmm. So they're... They're Torah observant, which Paul would have been iffy, you know, for Gentiles at least, would have been iffy about. Torah observant, pro-St. Paul, um, and pro-Jesus. That breaks down a lot of categories. Yeah. Right? So those are fun reads. And and scholars will tell you that traditionally they were read as, okay, well, these were, they're so Jewish 
that they must have been written by first century Jews, and then Christians kept interpolated. them and interpolated and wrote Christ into them. Right. But modern scholars are now saying, no, 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 there's there's great unity. There's a unity of thought. There's unity the of thought in these texts. That, yeah. Why are we separating them out? Yeah. Why not look at them as continuous communities mm-hmm. who were writing these texts and accepted Jesus as Messiah, right. Messiah Jesus. Right. Um, so that breaks down. So should, are these Jewish Christian texts? Right. right. That should break down all our categories of Jew versus Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay. And these are second century texts. Mm-hmm. So we've said there's a parting, but again, there's still nuance. There's a nuance to it. Yeah. So go read the Testaments of the Patriarchs. Right. Um, great documents. The other ones are the pseudo Clementine literature. So there's uh, in this in this body of literature, it's two basically two novels, uh, the homilies and the recognitions probably dating to the 4th century with elements that trace back to the 2nd and 3rd century, okay? Mm-hmm. But they're two novels that basically rewrite the history of the book of Acts. Okay. And the story focuses on James and Peter. And the writers of the pseudo-Clementine literature were seem to be Torah-observant, but they're actually anti-cultic. Mm-hmm. But they also, like you said... Um, propose two parallel lines of salvation. They say the Hebrews have Moses Mm -hmm. and the Christians have Jesus. And Moses was hidden from the Gentiles and Jesus was hidden from the Jews. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, it's probably a a lot of Jewish, maybe a Jewish Christian community is trying to navigate the fact that the rabbis have rejected Jesus as Messiah. Mm-hmm. They're trying to reconcile that and still stay close to their Jewish brethren. Yeah. So again, even well into the fourth century, you're seeing great intersectionality between these two estranged sisters. Mm-hmm. Good. So um, in the next episode, what we're going to do um, is focus on one aspect, like we said, of the second century parting story that we think is actually the most significant, and that is the differing concepts, the, the emergent differing concepts of God, like himself, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, in his nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of fruitful territory for further research. Hey, if anybody's out there and they want to they want a free thesis thrown at them. <laughs> you know, that, that, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're in, if you're in a PhD program and you need a thesis. Yeah, you're struggling. Um, so this is fruitful territory for further research. It's to bring together all of these different scholars who've spearheaded all these like really innovative, uh, innovative points of research. Right. So, so let's say like, okay, independent scholar Margaret Barker with Temple Theology. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one. It'd be great to see people bring these scholars together and talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, Margaret Barker is one of them, good one. Uh, Peter Schaefer, um, Daniel Boyarin, um, Michael Heiser uh, on the on the Protestant side. Um, and, so, and, so to, to say what they did, though. So you, you have Margaret Barker, Temple Theology. You've mm-hmm. got Daniel Boyarin with the uh, Two Powers in Heaven. Um, that and we'll, Ellen Siegel. We'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael Heiser on the Divine Council, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, James D.G. Dunn, with, who is, is one of the major Parting of the Ways scholars. Parting of the Ways. And then you have the independent scholar, Dr. Ellis Lindsley, who's a biblical anthropologist, who talks really different about... different take. Very different take, but talks about um, Horite Hebrew religion mm-hmm. and what it looked like and what its roots were and all those things. So if, if all of these areas of research could speak to one another... Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they have, be- yeah. And, and it's be- at that point, it's like it's begun started to. Started to, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So in the next episode, what we're going to do is kind of let all of those views speak to one another. And then we'll sort of present um, what we kind of think might be, might be driving, uh, at, at least at the heart of this parting of the ways story. Yeah.